In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear. For spirit, one spirit, is in this very room, in this very room, in this very And so I invite you to settle into this moment. And as you breathe, allow your breath to just take you deeper, to relax, to surrender, to allow stillness to be your experience, to put the busyness of the mind aside for a moment and to observe it rather than be it. And so I just give thanks in this moment on behalf of each person here as well as myself. As we come together in this powerful, sacred practice of recognizing this force for good, this unseen force of life that is moving for us and through us and as us, and as we slow down and open ourselves to that, it has a a more apparent and availability to each and every one of us. The paradox is to quiet ourselves, to be fully present. And so I know this day grounds us. We initiate something here and now that carries us forward to eternity. This is my knowing for myself. And I invite you to join me in this. The seeds are planted this day. Insights and awarenesses. The, The opportunity and the welcome is there. And it is our opportunity to pay attention and to know when we know. So it may be in this moment. It may be in, in several weeks or months. But whatever it is, that time is valuable and potent and powerful. And so I know I plant the seeds of possibility, of opportunity, of inspiration, of creativity, of abundance and wealth, of health and vibrancy, of joy, of opportunity, of creative expression that that benefits far beyond my own small needs to bless the entire planet. And so I give thanks for this beautiful, awake and aware community, that there is something powerful and beautiful moving and having its way in and through and as each and every one of us and the qualities that we desire to experience as we embody more and more of those, we bring in people of like mind into our awareness, into our lives. And so for this, I give thanks. I give thanks. I release these words in gratitude and appreciation, knowing that I will continue to do my part in every way, shape, and form to be, to be the midwife to the newness that is finding its way that is uniquely mine and yours. I celebrate your great good as you celebrate mine, for there is no private good, for we are all one. For this I give thanks and invite you to say with me, and so it is. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Good morning, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy whatever you're celebrating, birthday, Merry Christmas, all that stuff. We're here um, in this time of year, and it's, you know, it's, there's a, an energetic of this time of year that we all experience, and I think it can be, well, it is what we make it, just like everything else. This idea of being present, becoming, you being present, be, you becoming the gift of Christmas, based on and inspired by the, the mindfulness work of John Kabat-Zinn's. So I have a short little video I want to show you this morning that I think sets up a little bit of what uh, John Kabat-Zinn's represents.
Despite what you may have heard, meditation does not involve joining a group, paying any fees, wearing any special outfits, sitting in a funny position, or believing in anything in particular. It is simple, secular, scientifically validated exercise for your brain. You don't have to do it yet, but just so you know, here are the three steps. One, sit with your back straight and your eyes closed. Two, notice the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. Pick a spot where it's most prominent. Usually that's your nose or your chest or your belly, and just focus your full attention on the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. Now, as soon as you try to do this, your mind's gonna go nuts. You're gonna start thinking about, what am I gonna have for lunch? Why did I say that dumb thing to my boss? Your brain's gonna go nuts, and that's fine. The whole game is to notice when you've gotten lost and to start over, and then to start over again, and again, and again. Every time you do that, it's like a bicep curl for your brain, and it shows up on the brain scan. Scientists have found this in the lab. It's also, by the way, a radical act. You're breaking a lifetime's habit of walking around in a fog of projection and rumination, and you're actually focusing on what's happening right now. Meditation is unlike anything you do in the rest of your life. Failure is actually success. As I said, the whole game is just trying, failing, starting again, failing, starting again. Here's my advice. You should be meditating every day, five to 10 minutes a day, that's it. This doesn't require some giant investment. I don't care how busy you are, you have five to 10 minutes to give this a shot. I guarantee you it will make a big difference. Five to 10 minutes a day can make a huge difference. <clears throat> so it doesn't have to be a, a lifetime activity. We don't have to give ourselves away to all of it. But I also think it's important to talk today a bit about the importance of practicing and practicing well. So here's a picture of the Christmas tree that uh, we're in that season of you being the present under the tree, perhaps, if you have a tree. And uh, based on this book, Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn, this book was on the bestseller list for a number of years, uh, the New York Times bestseller list, and it's a wonderful little gem that I know a number of people have purchased, but it's uh, got wonderful little essays in it, like little blogs before blogs were popular, and ideas around spiritual practice. One of the quotes from the book that, is, that uh, Kabat-Zinn talks about being one of his favorites is, renew thyself completely each day. Do it again and again and forever again. It comes from the Chinese um, field of wisdom. It was a quote that um, Henry David Thoreau was very fond of and used in his writings and at the, his uh, publication of Walden. He used it. Renew thyself completely each day. So each day is a fresh moment to dip into that deep well of the, the spiritual experience and slowing down and breaking those patterns. You know, we see it on the, 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 we see people that are operating at such a frenetic, repetitive pace, chasing their tails. You know, we, you look at the, you look at, and, and so when we, we ground ourselves in this relationship, it's not just about slowing ourselves down. There's a, a depth of understanding and a depth of being that emerges as a result of it. And it's a gift to us. We know the studies that show there's great health benefit for us in our, in our physical being. Uh, psychologically, it helps clear some of the clutter so we can be more effective. And I'm gonna share a few stories with you today that help illustrate that in such a profound and, and powerful way. So we're not, this isn't stuff we're making up. This is tried and true practice. To spend 10 minutes a day in a spiritual practice that 
that can change everything for us. Why not? Even if, you know, and, and, and give it a shot. But I love what he says about it in the cartoon there, about it. You, the, the idea is you, you start and you fail and you go back to it. Oh, I see. There's no way, that, there's no way I can get this wrong. So once you know that you, you're going to fail, what's the problem with failing? You know, there's no energy around that. Another of my favorite um, Henry David Thoreau quotes is, to affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of arts. So all of us can live our lives as, as artists, to affect the quality of the day. So it's not so much what happens out there, it's our response to it, how we filter things. Despite all of the chaos, you know, you're watching the, keeping an eye on, you know, we had to, we got the, the political thing going on right now in the United States, or as my friend, uh, one of my friends here from Edmonton says, the excited states of America, which I think comes from uh, Red Green, was it? Or one of the comedians. But this whole idea around, um, you know, who has the next right idea that can fix it all? You know, if you've noticed, Donald Trump was leading the Republican Party. And he says, the first thing he says is, it will never let you down. I'll never let you down. I'll never let you down. Has anybody ever been in, an, in a relationship where somebody hasn't let us down? But he's never going to let us down. But should I let you down, I will apologize. Well, what is it, Donald? Are you never going to let us down, or are you going to let us down and apologize? And then it goes on and on. And, of course, he's going to, the great thing is he's going to build a wall between Mexico and the United States, and Mexico is going to pay for it. That's going to be fascinating to watch, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it goes on and on and on. And, and so, but how do, we, how do we observe that and understand and not lose ourselves in it and not be, to spin in the frustration of this insanity? For me, you, you know, hey, you know, everybody's free to have their opinion about that, and I, who knows? Maybe it's the right thing to happen, but for me, it just seems a bit uh, based on fantasy. But how does, so one example of how the world can pull us in and we can be, spin in the frustration and the, in all these big issues that are around us, but it does, we do not assist it by not at least grounding ourselves in the truth of our being, because that affects everyone. So meditation, it's a way of being. It's not just a practice for five or 10 minutes. It actually affects our way of being. Once again, so we're not drawn out of... Dr. Holmes said we must have an elasticity to our practice. Our prayer is there's one life, that life is perfect, that life is God, and that life is my life right now. It's one of the primary tenets of our, our teaching. So this whole idea of blame and shame, if that was your tradition as a, a smaller person, that's done. You don't get to do that anymore. You start, step in the doors of this and you start to engage this philosophy, blaming and shaming yourself and others, it's done. And having strong opinions about the world and how you're going to fix it, it's done. You can have a knowing about it and you can work in that direction, but to work from it from anger and frustration only exacerbates that energy. So it's when we stand in the grace of knowing who we are and living from that more and more and more, our activities, our conversations, our interactions, our strong opinions are grounded. So there's a knowing. We don't have to convince anybody. If we know, it doesn't represent me. No thanks, I don't want to go hang out with you guys. I'm not going to join you in that. Thanks very much. So it's a way of being, a way of living. It informs our behavior, a way of listening. This morning I got up and I was ready to come. I've got a routine that was going to get here and I couldn't get the garage door open at my house. Go figure. I, you know, and then God and I started having a conversation. How can a man as holy as I not be able to get his garage door open, God? What's going on here? Why are you punishing me this way? I didn't go there once. I was just like, 
Yeah, I can't get the garage door open. And, and then everybody was advising me on the way out. Well, let me tell you what happened, okay? It would open six inches, so it wasn't froze shut. It would just stop, and it would close and stop and close. So I got the screwdriver out because my car's in the way, right? I'm cranking up the tension. Still wouldn't open any farther. So then I pulled the string so I could open it by hand. Couldn't budge it. Oh, thank God I got a passenger door here to get out in and out of this place. I'd be stuck in here. I could die in the garage, and nobody would know. So... Then I get here, and it's cold, and in my office, if the heat's not on, it's very cold. It's like outside cold. I've said for years that we could actually keep, like, meat in there to keep it fresh for consuming when the heat's not on. And I have a little heater that got unplugged, and it doesn't, it's a, it's a, it's a frosty place. And I walk in, I put my books on my, ta- my desk, I have got these hydraulic uh, metal legs that are from this little Ikea desk I have. And all of a sudden, the desk just goes, hmm. And I thought, look at this. What a day. What are, what are you trying to tell me here? So I had to just surrender and say, well, it's going to be a great day anyway, even though I, my car's being held hostage by the garage door. <clears throat> and my once desk is now a coffee table. <laughs> I just started laughing. I just thought, wow, this is great. And it just goes to show you, you make plans and then things happen, right? But, you, you know, it's so easy to take this stuff personal or, you know what, it's like, stop it. Things get cold, things freeze, you know, this is the environment we live in. So it's a way of being, a way of living, a way of listening, paying attention. So I could make it a great day or not a great day, whether my desk stays up at regular height or it's a coffee table now or I can get my car out, I can't get my car out, I still got here. <clears throat> All I had to do was get here. I'll get home somehow. Don't worry. I know where I live. It's a way of walking along the path of life and being at peace with the way things are. And I thought, wow, I just wrote that. You know, I wrote that early this morning, and then here I am. Am I at peace with the way things are? And I just thought, well, you know, you can spin in it. You can rally, rage at the gods, but you ain't moving that garage door right now, and you now have a lower desk. So make peace with it. So in uh, John Kabat-Zinn's Wherever You Go, There You Are, he tells a wonderful story. It's a fairy tale called The Water of Life. And I got a little picture there. There's a young um, protagonist in the story talking to to the dwarf. So this story was written by the Grimm brothers. And they wrote some amazing fairy tales. And all the characters in sacred text and all the characters in fairy tales are us. All of them. Even the grotesque ones. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, they have a lot of these grotesque sort of deities. They're actually aspects of ourselves. They're the dark aspects of ourselves. Robert Bly, a wonderful poet, wrote Iron John, which is about men. And I've seen him do his poetry, and he's an amazing guy. But he talks about how you many times, to find the depth of our being, we have to go under the bridge with a bucket and, and sort of drain it out to get to the depths of our being. So it's not just all the light and the, and the joy. But it's becoming the total person. It comes out of the chapter in here about becoming the total person. And the total person is, is the divine perfection. To live our life of, of such integrity. To understand our dark sp- stuff and understand our light stuff. So we're able to choose wisely. Not keep suppressing those, those dark qualities. Um, John Kabat-Zinn says that when we have awareness, we create a container. And so when we get angry, the anger can be in the container. And then we can use the anger to be transformed, to be cooked into something that can be more valuable and nurturing and support us rather than, than uh, deplete us. So in the story of the, the, the water of life, there's three brothers and their father's the king. 
And the father of the king is, understands that there's this fountain that if he can get to this water, his life will be renewed, that he's on his, he's on his deathbed and he's very feeble. And they're wondering how they can obtain some of this water of life. And so they talk for a while and then the oldest son says, the oldest son says, you know, I think I, could, I can figure out where this water of life is. And he's thinking, well, you know, if I do this, I'll become my father's favorite and I will inherit his kingdom. And so he takes off, he decides to go find out where the... Uh, water of life is, and as he's riding along, he encounters a dwarf. Now, the dwarf represents the soul. Dwarf in, in fairy tales represents the soul, the smaller sense of self, but it is our, our, our soul of being. And so in this, he encounters this dwarf, and the dwarf says, can I help you? And he says, no, you can't help me, you silly little man. And he just discounts him and insults him and ignores him, and he rides off and <clears throat> doesn't get the help that he could have gotten. So the dwarf puts an enchantment on him, and the, and the, the first son rides and rides, and he in, rides into this mountain pass, and in the mountain pass, he finds that he can't turn left, he can't turn right, he can't go backwards, he's stuck. And so some time goes by, and the oldest son doesn't come back, and the dad says, what do we do? So son number two, who's also very much like his older brother, Decides he's going to go look for the water. And once again, he rides out. And he runs into the dwarf. Same deal. He's disrespectful. Dismisses him. No, no, no engagement at any level of, of meaning. And the dwarf puts an enchantment on him. And once again, he rides down a mountain path where it gets narrower and narrower. Can't go left. Can't go right. Can't back up. He's stuck. So the third son, the innocent, kind of like Cinderella, right? The third son rides out finally. And he encounters the dwarf. And the dwarf says... Where are you going? And he says, well, I, my father's very ill, and I'm looking for the water of life, but I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how to get there. If you could help me, I would really appreciate it. And the dwarf, his soul, you see how the other two discount their soul? This depth of being, this depth of knowing. The third son's open to it. I don't know. See, the first son... And the second son both assume because they know what they're looking for, they know how to get there. How many of us have done that? Well, I know what I'm looking for, therefore I know how to get there. <clears throat> and typically we don't. But in their arrogance and self-centeredness, they think they do, so it becomes a trap. And they don't engage the soul. But the third son says, I need your help. So the dwarf says, I can help you. I can help you. This is what you do. And he gives them this list of things to do, and it's very intricate and complicated. And he goes and he gets the water. <clears throat> and he's coming back with the water. And he sees the dwarf and he said, you know, I would really appreciate it if you could take my two brothers who I still love dearly and, re and remove the enchantment so that they could come back home so my father could see them. So he does that. So lo and behold, the two brothers that come back that have no connection with their soul and depth of being go back. And over a period of time, they start to conspire against the younger son. And on the way back, they, they're, they're traveling. They decide they'll drain the cup of the, the water of life from the youngest son's cup, fill it with salt water. They'll keep, the, they'll keep the precious water. And so the younger son, not knowing this, goes back, gives his father this salt water. The salt water is, is bitter tasting to the king. He spits it out. He says, what's wrong with this young son of mine? And the two older brothers are giggling and conspiring. He says, oh, we have the water for you and give them the water. So through a course of events, the truth reveals itself. And of course, the son eventually goes back to where he found the water of life, marries the princess, and establishes his own kingdom, which is really the metaphor for living in, in, in close proximity to our soul and, and, and being assisted in the guidance. So it's a fascinating little fairy tale. You can Google it on uh, 
on the uh, uh, internet and read the whole story. It's very intricate, but quite deep and profound about this idea of what the dwarf represents. It's a soul. So there's a wonderful book that I came across this week. Um, we did Michael Bo- um, Singer's The Untethered Soul. There he is. There's Michael. Michael's in his late 60s now. And an interesting man. I knew very little about him when I did The Untethered Soul, but I knew it was a great book. And we did that book of the month a while back. And so I was on the internet and I ordered another book by Michael, which he'll show you next, called The Surrender Experiment. And The Surrender Experiment is his life story. It's his journey. I had no idea what this guy's journey was. But it is an absolute example of surrender and living in close proximity to this unseen force for good, this divine. He asked the question at the beginning of the book. He talks about it in the introduction. He says, am I better off making up an alternative reality in my mind and then fighting with reality to make it my own way? Or am I better off letting go of what I want and serving the same forces of reality that managed to create the entire perfection of the universe around me? So do we want to swim upstream or do we want to swim downstream? And that's part of the journey of life is what's mine to do? Where's the clarity? In this book, if you haven't read it, we don't have them in. Um, Friday, Laura was reading this book. I got it. I ordered it. She read it. This is how it usually goes for us. And then she'll hand it to me and say, you've got to read this. And then I, I take my assignment from my, my boss and I do what I'm told. So, but it was, she said, I can't put this down. I picked it up Saturday morning, Friday night and Saturday morning. I said, I can't put this down. This amazing book. Amazing story. I mean, and I'm going to give you little pieces of it. I had no idea what this guy's journey was like. But when he was 22 years old, he was a graduate student. He was studying to be a professor. They were grooming him to be a professor of economics, in a, at a, and he was living in Gainesville, Florida. And, and he had an experience. He was sitting on a couch with his brother-in-law at the time, and he found himself observing his mind and his feelings rather than being them. All of a sudden, he could see himself, sort of as if he was sitting next to himself, and he could see himself. And he could see what was going on, this chatter, chatter, chatter. And he was like, wow, look at this. Look at my mind go. And he said to his brother-in-law, I said, did you ever notice your mind just like has a life of its own? He says, yeah, I have. And so in that, he had a shift in awareness. He found a book called The Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kaplow. And it talked about this, this meditation and the mantra. And the mantra was that he would imagine the sound moo, M-U, moo, in his belly while he breathed to watch the breath. And that's his practice. He started there. And what he wanted to know, he heard, this, he heard this voice as he started the practice that said, do you or do you not want to know what is behind, beyond you? That, that, that soul presence. We're not the mind, we're not the body, we're not the emotions. We're, we, are the, we are the oneness of spirit. We are the divine perfection. But it gets so masked and it gets so chaotic to get there that it's, it's very difficult. It's a challenge. Because so much of us is geared towards understanding and knowing that we're certain because we know what it is, we know how to get there, like the older brother. So in the, he began medita- meditating, and he began practicing yoga, and that's all he wanted to do. All of a sudden, his whole life changed. That's all he wanted to do. He didn't want to be a graduate student, didn't want to be a college professor, but he had people around him that mentored him, and one of the things he realized was that what he had to give up was preference. I like this, I don't like that. I don't like what he's got on, and I, I don't like what she's wearing, but on and on. You know, all this stuff that's, not, what? What is going on here? What an activity. And so he realized he had to put down preference, and he had to surrender to what is. He had to surrender to the journey into life's perfection, which is what we talk about all the time. There's one life. That life is perfect. That life is God's life. That life is my life now. How do we see one another with those eyes? So he found himself 
going back and forth, back and forth. Well, through a series of events, he got through school. He actually got his, his doctorate. And they invited him, because all he wanted to do was, let me back up a second, he just wanted to live in a box. He bought some land. His dad left him some money to, to pursue his higher education, and he didn't need to spend it, because uh, he got fellowships all the way through. He was such a great student, very bright young man. So he had scholarships and fellowships to get through his undergraduate and graduate work. <clears throat> so he had the money left, and he found this land in Gainesville. He would drive out. As, so once this thing happened to him, his marriage ended. His wife said, I'm done with this. Time for us to end. And, he, and then his roommate moved out, and he said, well, I'm moving out too. So he had a, a Volkswagen van that he lived in. And he would park the van out in these fields at night, live there, do meditation, eat his beans and rice, and he would meditate and do yoga. That's all he wanted to do. And with the money, he bought a piece of land that was about 10 miles north of town. So he bought this land, and he talked to his friends and said, can you guys help me build something that I can sort of live in? And he was thinking it'd be like a, a plywood box. Well, one of his friends was an architect, and the other was a, somewhat of a carpenter. And so they came out with this beautiful plan, and they built him a really lovely little cabin in the woods. And in fact, they said, here, you're going to learn how to, to do electrical work, and they gave him the book on how to be an electrician and how to wire the house. So he took the book, and he read it, and he wired the house. And so as time went on, he started to teach. He got a job. He didn't want to teach. He just wanted to meditate and do yoga. That's all he wanted to do. But he also made the agreement with this divine presence, with his soul, I will do whatever, I will walk through whatever door opens. I will surrender to whatever comes before me. So the one professor that really nurtured him and that he really respected said, I'd like you to teach here at this new community college we're opening part-time. And he said, well, I don't want to teach economics. He said, what do you want to teach? He said, I want to teach about this experience I'm having, about oneness, about meditation, about yoga, about connecting with this, this presence beyond what is so, so uh, apparent but not truly who we are. They said, yeah, sure, whatever. We got a course called uh, Social... Uh, it was around, uh, around those ideas, but it was around sociology. And so he began the teaching this class, and he started with 20 students, and pretty soon Warren got out, and pretty soon the room, their room was full of people. Students were just dropping in to hear what he had to say. He never prepared anything. He just got up and stream of consciousness would lecture. And it was just an amazing experience for these students, an amazing experience for him. Because he said, I had no agenda, but I wanted to talk about the things that were alive for me. So pretty soon this room is just filled to overflowing. It's the most popular class they have. And he's making 350 bucks a week, and he is a happy man. Because he gets to leave, and he tried not to interact with people. He did as little possible interaction because he wanted to stay in the meditative state. And he found that conversation pulled him out of it. So he tried not to, to interact with people too much. And everybody was pretty cool with that. You know, he would show up to his class, and then he'd go back to his empty lot, sit in his van, meditate, go for walks, and do his yoga. That's all he wanted to do. And so he's doing this, and, he, and his friends help then come and help build in the house. So now he's got a place to live, not a place to stay. And all of a sudden, through happenstance, he starts doing small renovation projects for people. People see this house he's built, they're like, wow, this guy's a great carpenter. Would you come and help us do this? And he started doing little renovations. All of a sudden, he's walking on his land one day, and he walks down, there's a sheriff's car sitting there next to his cabin. And he says, can I help you? He said, yeah. He said, did you, did you build this? And he said, yes, I did. And he thought, oh, man, I'm in trouble. Don't have a permit, whatever. The guy said, well, I've got a garage. I've got a carport. I'd like to turn into a, an addition at my home. Would you do that for me? And so his agreement was he would say yes to what showed up in his life because he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to be of service to this guy. He didn't want to be a contractor. And he heard him say, he said, sure, I can help you with that. 
So sure enough, he put together a small crew. They started working. Before you knew it, they had two crews going, and he had a woman that was running the office, and they were making money. In fact, they had one troublesome customer that was, he said, was just so demanding, and he thought, what's up with this woman? And she kept wanting this done, and she wanted it done now. He said, well, do you want me to pull everybody off of the other projects and come over here and fix your thing? And she said, yes, that's exactly what I want. So he thought, what's up, whatever, she's in my life. And they went and they finished it all up for him. And after the end of all the extras and everything, they ended up with $35,000 of profit. And he thought, this is huge. Because he, he wasn't good at bidding work. He would do it to time and material where he would bill for the hours and bill for the material. Anyway, the 35000 was exactly what they needed. They needed $37,000 to buy the adjacent so many acres next to what he owned. And throughout the book, this this land he bought, every so often land would become available and he would have just enough money to do it. And just enough money to do it. It's, throughout, it's an amazing book. I'm only giving a portion of this. But he kept surrendering. He kept doing his meditation practice that I am here. Because what he was starting to realize as a carpenter was it wasn't about him anymore. It was about him using this awareness to be of service to others. If we believe that God is present in everyone, then God is present in all. So he was in service to God by being in service to other people. And he said, we built extraordinarily beautiful places. He, in one time, these people came to him and said, we'd like you to build a home for us. And he didn't have the background and he couldn't get the funding. And finally, one banker said, you know, I've seen what you've done and I'm aware of your group. And, and so he's teaching at the college and he's also starting to have on his lot, he's having Sunday service on his lot. People are coming out on a Sunday morning, and he's preaching. And then they're doing a Monday and a Thursday night meditation with yoga and meditation. So all of a sudden, his lot is becoming this little community of spiritual seekers to come and have experience together. So that's going on. And he's got this construction company going on. They, they offer him, they want him to build his home. So the banker, that, this unique banker, says, I've seen what you're doing. I love your energy. I love what you're doing. I'm going to go ahead and give you a go-ahead. I'm going to offer you $20,000 to build this home for these people. And so all of a sudden, that tipped the scales, and he was able to start building these beautiful custom homes. And so that company grew and grew and grew. And he didn't want to do any of this. He just wanted to live in the box, meditate, and do yoga. But his agreement was, I surrender to what comes into my life, and I say yes to it. And so this is rolling along and rolling along, and and years later... He was guided to go to a video store. This is a great, there's so many great little stories in this book. He's guided to go to a video store. And he's in the video store looking through what they had. And he sees some guy behind the counter. And he, the guy looks familiar. And he says, I know you. And he said, yeah, I used to work. I was the guy at the bank when you guys needed the loan. And he said, you know, as a matter of fact, I was just turned down for a loan. He said, I quit the bank and I opened the store, but in order to expand and make the kind of, uh, you know, investment and, and, and cash flow I'd like, I need $20,000. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm going to loan you that $20,000 right now. And he said, what a sense of joy to be able to reciprocate and give back to this man that had helped him at a time when he really needed it. But the synchronicities throughout the story, so he gets this business going, he's got his community going, he's lecturing, he's doing Sunday morning, he's doing Thursday night, he's doing Monday nights, he's teaching at the college, and someone says to him, can you write a software program for, in your spare time, write a software program for people that do billing for this particular um, industry for the healthcare. So doctors, dentists, all the hospitals would be able to bill, there'd be a way to to customize this thing so you could, you could type in the type of form you needed and then you could send it out electronically. And so he worked on it, it worked on it, came up with it. But one of the beautiful things about his capacity to create was he was so clear and grounded. 
See, when we're clear and grounded, when we're not stuck in resentment and anger and frustration and getting ours and blaming somebody, it opens us up to a whole new realm of being. Now, he's a brilliant man, but he said that the capacity for him to think and think, think things through quickly and clearly was because of the meditation and the grounding practice he was doing. So he wrote this incredible program that somebody heard about that was in California that flew out to see him and said, you know what, we want to use your software to introduce to the industry as the industry standard. And this business went from all these, and, and you know, a third of the book is about how this business grew. But it went from him sitting in the woods in his cabin writing the software program to a billion dollar company. It's worth billions. It went on the public exchange. It had an IPO, an initial public offering. And it was worth billions. And he had the one certificate of stock. He said it was, a friend of his says, you should incorporate just in case. He said, nah, whatever. Had one certificate of stock. He threw it in the uh, safety deposit box. Had to go get it so he could take it to the, mail it to New York when they, when they finally went on the IPO. It was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So he goes through this whole experience, but through the whole thing, he kept going back to his meditation. All he wanted to do was meditate and do yoga and live in the box. And he, all of the money, the income he had, he, went, he put it back into, he built a temple there. He built a building. It looks like a couple of cabins with this butterfly roof. They called it the temple because all these great spiritual teachers would come through. Um, uh, Baba Muktananda was there who started the city yoga. He came through. And then uh, and all these wonderful teachers would come through and they would hold retreats there. So he's got all this stuff going, but they just kept showing up. And every time he needed somebody for the, for the uh, software writing, the right person would show up. And as the business grew, they had five buildings over time. They had like 3,000 uh, employees. And then he's doing all this, and he's just, the, the whole thing is cooking. All of a sudden, one of his employees was bribing the vendors and taking kickbacks at a, the cost of about five, over $5 million this, they had found. This, this particular salesman they'd hired was bribing the vendors and getting kickbacks. And so what this fellow did was he figured out how to make it look like he was told by the, the management, by Michael Singer and the board, to do this, that it was by their instruction. So they spent $190 million defending themselves. They had to get attorneys for, for Florida, for South Carolina, for Washington, D.C. It took five years to straighten it all out. And he said, you know, the temptation to get angry and frustrated was there, but he kept surrendering, kept surrendering. And unfortunately, they had the resources to defend themselves, but this guy made up this whole long story. So the only mistake they made was they hired this guy. But as he said, it wasn't a mistake. Forever what it was, this came and we said yes to that too. But over a period of time, he said to his attorney at one time, he said, Could, is it a possibility the United States government who's suing us would just dimish, dis, uh, 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 dismiss all this? And he said, nah, probably not. They'd never do that. Well, after a certain period of time, it went on and on and on, and, and it went on so long that attorneys passed away, and Platons, I mean, people were dying. They finally dismissed the whole thing because it was, it, they realized it was frivolous and fraudulent. But he said, and at the end of it, of course, the company was still going, and it flushed out a lot of things that were inefficient, and at the end of it, it came out stronger and better than it was at the beginning, when it was under the, the lawsuit. But going into it, he just kept doing his spiritual practice. And then he said at the end of the book, he said, here I am, back in nature. I'm back in my plywood box, meditating and doing yoga, which is all I ever wanted to do. But he blessed by being of service to what showed up and being grounded in the presence of who and what he was. 
All these amazing things happen. It is one of the most remarkable stories I've ever read in my life. And I'm leaving out about 150 remarkable, remarkable circumstances in it. He said, uh, Michael Singer says, There's very, there are very distinct aspects of what we call mind. He said, there, there is the logical, thought-driven mind that links together what we already know into complex patterns of thought in order to come up with logical solutions. That's one part. And then there's the intuitive, inspiration-driven mind that can look at a problem and instantly see a creative solution. As it turned out, the years of spiritual work I had done to quiet that voice in my head had opened the door for almost constant inspiration. Constant inspiration. It seemed that the quieter the mind, the more that solutions became self-evident. So, 10 minutes a day. Who knows? What idea might float up? Just saying... This is a lovely story. The last paragraph in the book. People often ask me how I look at things now that I've gone through the life-changing experiences of the past 40 years. And I tell them to read The Untethered Soul. If you haven't read that book, it's wonderful. He wrote The Untethered Soul while he was going through the lawsuit. He said when this all went on, he realized he had to resign as CEO. He was CEO of his company. It had been acquired. They made him CEO. All these big companies came in and kept buying it, and there were merger after merger. And he realized once the lawsuit started to, to serve well and to not be in the way, he resigned from all of his positions. But what it did is it created the space so he could go back and meditate and do yoga and live in his box and write the book, The Untethered Soul. How could I possibly explain the great freedom that comes from realizing to the depths of your being that life knows what it's doing? Isn't that a great, great, life knows what it's doing? I mean, we truly are eternal. We truly are, I mean, and, and at the deepest level of our being and those that we love, whether they're here with us now or not, they're, they're right there with us. Those that we love are always close by. There's no loss. We miss the tactile experience. We knew, we miss what we got familiar with. But the love's still there. The relationship is still there. And at the level of the perfection of our being, that's what's so rich and wonderful. So, but life knows what it's doing. Only direct experience can take you there. You and I, to have a deep practice, five minutes a day where it's a deep and beautiful and focused practice of there's one life, that life is God's life. That life is perfect and I claim that life now as my own and I surrender to that. And this is exactly what he was doing. He didn't know how to get there, but he knew what he was looking for. He was like the third son. I need your help. I don't know, but I'm looking for the water of life. Can you help me? I know how to get there. So if, if we need help, we need assistance, and we set that intention, it shows up. The right guide will show up. And it might be a book. It might be a meditation. It might be a movie. We just saw that movie Trumbo. If you haven't seen it, everybody should see that movie. It's about the, 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 uh, the writers in Hollywood that were, were blackballed for years. And at the end of it, Trumbo, when it finally all washed out and he got up to, he was given an award. He was banned for, he wrote three Academy Award movies under aliases because he couldn't write under his own name because he was a communist. And so you see the movie and you understand it, but at the end of it, he got up at the, when all the things had settled down and he said, you know, not one person has been indicted. Every one of us that went to prison, because he went to prison for it, he said there hasn't been one validation of all the accusations. There hasn't been one bit of, of legislation written to combat what they said was such a problem. Not one. 
But he said, you know what happened through all of this, through the hatred and the fear? We all lost. Everybody lost. The ones that were making the, were pointing their fingers and screaming at us, and those of us that were fighting, we all lost. But it's so true, and it's these dramas that we get caught up in. At some point, he said, there's no, no more struggle, just the deep peace that comes from surrendering to a perfection that is beyond our comprehension. Life knows what it's doing. There's a perfection that is beyond my comprehension. That's for me. And I will do whatever's mine to do with it. Part of what mine's to do with it is sit down and meditate and connect with it and then take that energy out into my day-to-day life. Eventually, even the mind stops resisting and the heart loses a tendency to close. The joy, excitement, and freedom are simply too beautiful to give up. Once you're ready to let go of yourself, life becomes your friend, your teacher, your secret lover. Oh, man. Whew. I got to save some energy. I got to go home and fix that garage door. <laughs> when life's way, way becomes your way, all the noise stops and there's a great peace. In eternal gratitude for all the experiences we call life. It's an adventure. And we don't know the way many times. But that's okay. That's part of the mystery. If we got it all figured out, it's boring. Dr. Holmes said we should fast, stop, fast from the idea of lack and feast on the idea of plenty. We are told to, he says this in Living the Science of Mind, he said we are told to think on whatsoever is true, lovely, and of good report. We should dwell on those things rather than on their apparent opposites. So in this beautiful chapter in Living the Science of Mind, he says fast on anger and feast on love. Fast on poverty and feast on wealth. Fast on uncertainty and feast on oneness. Fast on judgment and feast on forgiveness. Fast on confusion and feast on clarity. Those are the things we can do. I mean, Michael Singer, you read this book, it's just like, holy cow, and this guy's amazing. I had no idea. Holmes continues, what incredibly rich quality of being are you ready to nurture and develop? Work with your genius within using deep practice and devotion. Affirming each step on the road entices us with the enchantment of a new vista. To eagerly await the new vista, to see things with new new eyes. You're to do. If you aren't guiding your awareness and consciousness, chances are circumstances and other people are. If you're not taking leadership and responsibility in your life, I can guarantee you somebody else is. And, and, and if you're comfortable doing that, great. But you don't have to keep doing that. Ask yourself, is this something I choose to feast on? And choose accordingly. This is a season of feasting. We get together with family and friends and we enjoy their company. We enjoy the wonderful meals and the wonderful time together. And feasting on that. But every day can be a feast. What is it that's precious to you? For Michael Singer, it was meditation and yoga. It's all he wanted to do. But he also realized that there's something for me to do here. And, and he realized as well that it wasn't about him simply going beyond himself. It was taking that awareness, that experience of grace, that experience of peace, that experience of faith and trust, and, and being in service to, the, to life, being in service to the world. And his genius, because of his clarity of thought, continued to emerge and emerge and emerge. All of us are impacted by the gifts that he shared with the efficiency and the clarity that he blessed the world through what he did and what he's done. That was one person, one person. 
All I got to say to that is, that's for me. And I know it's for you. So Merry Christmas. Blessings. Blessings.